We're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' awesome Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 to 7. Today we'll be looking at some verses in Matthew 5. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your device, I encourage you to turn to the fifth chapter of Matthew. And I want to begin today by drawing your attention to the question that's on your sermon notes, your outline, on the very front, under date and authority. Here's the question. When it comes to making moral choices and decisions, how do you decide right from wrong? Well, to help you kind of frame your answer, I want to share with you five different life situations. And uh, I'll tell you later on why I'm sharing these five particular uh, situations. We'll get to that later. But here's the first of the five that I want you to think about. You decide on a Sunday morning to attend a worship service in a church in South Minneapolis. There you go. And so you walk in and you sit down and you're preparing your heart and mind for worship. You open your eyes and kind of look around to see who's here today and you go, oh no, he's here or she's here. This person who hurt you, maybe who manipulated you in some fashion or unloaded a series of put downs or some way, made, maybe perhaps guilted and shamed you before other people and you were devastated. So there's that person. What do you do? How do you handle it? What determines if you will avoid the person, if you will seek revenge in some fashion, maybe guilting and shaming them in, in some public fashion, or will you maybe send them a text message saying, can we talk after the service today? So what moral compass will determine what you will do when a relationship is broken? That's the first situation. So here's the second. Let's say you grew up in a very restrictive, conservative, religious family and church. Now, I don't think that applies to anybody here necessarily, uh, but perhaps in your past for some of you. But that's your situation. But you know what? You're older now. You're hundreds of miles away from mom and dad. And um, you are feeling a great deal of affection toward a very special individual. So how do you determine what's right and what's wrong when it comes to the physical aspects of your relationship? Let's say the two of you are there watching a movie together. You didn't know this in advance necessarily in selecting this particular movie, but there it is on the screen, two individuals engaging in passionate lovemaking and everything within you desires to move in that same direction. So again, how do you decide what's your moral compass determining right from wrong when it comes to the physical aspects of your relationship? Scene three, you're married, lonely, unhappy, still young enough to feel certain romantic feelings if the right individual were to come along and sure enough, you've connected with somebody in the workplace who think you think can provide you with everything that seems to be missing in your relationship to your spouse. So, will you stay married? Will you move in with this individual? 
What determines how you will handle the emotional pull toward this person in light of your marital commitment? So that's the, uh, the third scene. Here's the fourth. According to one survey, 91% of all Americans confess that they lie routinely about everything. So the question is, how close to home is that for you? The kids that are here this morning, um, do you ever try to deceive mom and dad when it comes to getting out of deserved punishment, making up stories? She did it. He made me do it. When you know that's not the truth, ever move in that direction? Or how about the rest of us? When it comes to truth-telling on resumes, job interviews, college applications, and everyday life, are deceit and distortion ever part of your game plan for self-advancement? All right, one more. You're stopped at a red light, and you're in the right lane, cars to your left, and you could see on the other side of the intersection that when you get to this certain area, all the traffic is gonna to have to merge into one line. Light changes, you move in that direction, get to that area, and are just about ready to move over into that lane when this guy in the other lane speeds up, cuts you off, gestures. You're not sure what that really means, but it seems to be a number that perhaps indicates that person's IQ, you know, and, and there you are cut off. So, multiple choice answer. What do you do? Do you A, lower your window and say, God bless you, my son? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> B, gesture back. C, do you cut him off or D, all of the above? <laughs> so, going back over these examples, by what standard do you deal with offenses regulate your sex life, determine if you're gonna work through issues and stay married, decide how honest you'll be and how you handle obnoxious people. You wanna know why I share those five situations with you? Because those are the exact five situations that Jesus is gonna unpack for us right here in the fifth chapter of Matthew in verses 21 to 48. And in each case, whether Jesus is talking about anger or sex or fidelity in marriage, truth-telling, revenge, loving one's enemy, are we free to apply human reasoning to solve these kinds of ethical and moral issues? I mean, do you adopt the standards of whatever your friends happen to think? Is it the result of what your gut tells you? Is it a matter of... Uh, what the majority opinion is among Americans, you know, sort of morality by consensus. How do you go about deciding right from wrong when it comes to these matters? Well, to find out what the moral compass is that Jesus wants us to follow for every situation in life. Let's stand together for the reading of God's truth. Recorded here in Matthew chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 17 through 20. Let's hear the word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, 
will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here ends the reading of scripture. Please be seated. So here Jesus unpacks for us, he kind of cuts through the maze of confusion on these moral ethical sorts of issues by first of all describing his relationship to scripture, his moral compass, and then he goes on to talk about what is to be our relationship to scripture. So if you're looking at your sermon notes, you'll notice those are the two areas that we're gonna be addressing this morning. So first of all, I want us to consider Jesus' relationship to scripture for two reasons. Number one, because it's in the text and I wanna be faithful to the text, but for another reason, I also want, to, want us to examine Jesus' relationship to scripture because then we will know what the Son of God himself thinks about how he uses scripture. And it seems to me, if you and I claim to be followers of Jesus, that ought to be crucial for us. So what's his view? Well, you notice he begins verse 17 by saying, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now by law, Jesus is referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sometimes called the law of God or simply the law or the law of Moses. The prophets would refer to essentially everything else. So he's really saying he didn't come to abolish scripture, the Bible of the Old Testament. But you notice how he says it? He says, do not think which suggests the possibility that some of these people had been thinking that very thing, that that's why he had come, to abolish the law and the prophets. Jesus had just recently started his public ministry, and yet some people evidently were already upset by his supposed attitude toward the scriptures. I mean, it was clear to their wary way of thinking that their teachers of the law were really into the Bible, the Pharisees and their scribes were oftentimes quoting what the various rabbis had to say on a particular issue. And Jesus comes along and he speaks on his own authority. And he would introduce some of his most important statements as he does in verse 18 here by saying, I tell you the truth. As if to suggest, forget about what rabbi, whatever his face is, has to say on this topic. You listen to me. And so was he in fact setting himself up as the authority over against the sacred writings? So it seemed and so their question stated or simply imagined is here answered. Do not think that I've come to, this, to abolish the law or the prophets. It strikes me that that question is essentially still being asked today, although certainly in a variety of ways, where people want to know where is Jesus on ethical issues? And how does he line up with the Bible and some of those kinds of things? For example, 
Many would say to us today that there is no law, there is no objective ethical compass except the law of love. Love is the only absolute that there is. And so dishonesty in speech, sexual gratification before marriage, infidelity within marriage, the right to do what I want to do, what pleases me, are all justified on the basis of love or self-love. And so by contrast, Jesus is making it, I think, crystal clear that his attitude toward the scriptures is not one of destruction or discontinuity. He hadn't come to abolish the scriptures, nor had he come to endorse them in a kind of a cold, legalistic fashion. Okay, then why had he come? Not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, in order for us to understand the implications of what Jesus is saying in this statement, we need to realize that the scriptures of the Old Testament contains different kinds of instruction and how Jesus fulfilled the different kinds of instruction is certainly then going to vary. Let me explain what I mean. The Old Testament, first of all, contains doctrinal instruction. There's a lot of it. In fact, every major doctrine of our faith, doctrine about God and the Trinity, uh, the Bible, about salvation, about life and death and your purpose in life and attitudes toward the environment. I mean, every, practically every doctrine you can imagine that we hold to and are concerned about is taught, at least in seed form, throughout the pages of the Old Testament. So Jesus fulfills the doctrinal teaching, how? By explaining it further, by fleshing it out, by completing it in his own teaching ministry and his work. So that's one type of teaching. And then the Old Testament also contains a prophecy, a lot of it having to do with the coming of the Christ, the Messiah of God, for telling in direct statements, for example, where he would be born, that he'd be born of a virgin, and what he would be like in his terms of his saving mission and his suffering, and how he'd be resurrected. All of that is found in the pages, direct prophecies in the pages of the Old Testament. But we also have symbols, like the whole sacrificial system. To illustrate what, I'm, what I mean here, I mean, I'm looking around this morning and I don't see any lambs. Now why is that? God commanded in the Old Testament that worshipers were to come before him with an unblemished lamb that would be offered in a sacrifice. How come we didn't do that this morning? No lamb sacrifice led by Devon. How come? Well, because Jesus fulfilled all of that. So we have verses like this one in Colossians. These are a shadow. All of these ceremonies, all of these sacrifices are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So that's how he fulfills prophecy. You've got doctrine, you've got prophecy. You also have ethical instruction, for example, in the Ten Commandments. And in the rest of Matthew 5, for instance, we find that Jesus fulfills them not only by obeying them, but by explaining their fuller meaning. So he didn't come to abolish scripture, but rather to fulfill it in these different ways. Now, all of this is leading up to my asking you a question. If you accept Jesus as the leader and the Lord of your life, it would seem to me that we need to hold to his view of scripture. 
It needs to be our moral compass for every single dimension of life. And the question is, do you do that? Do you? When it comes to forming views and behavioral patterns about singleness, dating, marriage, sex, the environment, economics, business, race relations, poverty, recreation, immigration reform, the use of leisure time, attitudes toward parents, or any other area you want to bring up, is your number one guide and compass, what do my friends think? What will be popular with my tribe? What about my gut? What does it tell me? What's the majority American opinion? Or what does scripture teach? So Jesus sums up his attitude toward the scriptures in a single phrase, not abolition, but fulfillment. Okay, having told us about his purpose in coming, now he's gonna tell us why in a statement that appears in verse 18. It's because of its permanent validity. Look at what he says. I tell you the truth. So there's Jesus asserting his authority. I'm telling you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's as if Jesus is saying here, I so believe in the authority and inspiration of scripture that not even the little dot above a lowercase I or the bar on the T, as it were, will pass away until everything has been accomplished. Someday, heaven and earth will disappear. This world as we know it will be gone. There will be a new heaven and new earth, the Bible says, the home of righteousness. Time is going to be no more. And we're not going to need the Bible anymore, the written word of God, because everything in it will have been accomplished and will be in the presence of Christ himself. But until that day comes, it stands. So scripture is as enduring as the universe. That's Jesus' point. I don't think he could have expressed his high regard for the scriptures any more clearly than that. I mean, isn't it clear that he considered it, each part of it, to be given by God, not only as a guide in some vague kind of a way, but its authority extends to the smallest of points, right down to the smallest of letters and pen strokes? It certainly is a view supported by others in scripture. Look at this statement by the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 3.16. He says that all scripture, now that would include all of the Old Testament, and because Paul is writing near the end of his earthly ministry, no doubt some New Testament documents that had already started circulation and acceptance, all scripture, notice, is God-breathed. God-breathed. Just as God, in Genesis 1 we read, spoke and zillions of galaxies and stars burst into existence. God creating it initially out of nothing, absolutely nothing existing, and God creates. And in this massive universe of ours, there's this little dinky planet called Earth that is just teeming with animal life and vegetation, all the result of God's spoken word. Well, here we read that God exhaled. He breathed out. 
And the result is scripture. All scripture is the result of the creative breath of God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. So that's Paul. Let's bring in Peter as another witness. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. You must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. They didn't make this stuff up, guys. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophecy, prophets rather though human, spoke from God as they were carried along like the wind, you know, moving a sailboat, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, did human writers write the Bible? Well, of course they did. That explains why I have all of these different stylistic, you know, genre. All, you've got poetry, the Psalms. You've got historical narrative material. You've got, in the New Testament, Gospels. You've got letters. You've got what is called apocalyptic literature in the book of Revelation. All kinds of, it's why Luke tells us in the beginning of his Gospel that he made use of historical material to write the Gospel of Luke. Why Moses tells us he made use of oral tradition. Of course, the scripture is the product of human writers, but they wrote under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, so that all of their personality, their temperament, all of the cultural background, all of that was under the Holy Spirit's direction. So when they got all done, they were communicating exactly word for word what God wanted to communicate. So we can come up with this definition. The Bible, here it is, the Bible is the word of God in the language of human writers. That's why it's true in all that it expressly asserts. Now I mention all of this because Jesus' view of the scriptures as being true and authoritative is not endorsed by all pastors or by all churches or by Christian college and seminary professors. Sometimes the idea is asserted, well, yeah, Bible is true when it speaks to matters of salvation, personal salvation. But you know, we're 2,000 years plus removed from the writing of the Bible. A lot has happened. We're scientifically so advanced that when it comes to historical or scientific matters, you know, maybe the Bible is just filled with all kinds of errors. No. Granted that the Bible is not a textbook on chemistry or you know, science or medicine or those kinds of things. But when it speaks about these or any other kind of issue, including moral issues, this book doesn't lie to us because it takes on the character of the, of the God who has breathed out scripture. And that God cannot lie to us. And so its authority, its truthfulness, extends to the smallest letter and least stroke of a pen. Do you believe that? Now maybe you've got questions and you're still kind of struggling with all of this, in which case I'm glad you're here at City Church and I hope you find this to be a place where you can process your questions, your doubts, your concerns to get some help in this and other areas. But the reality is at least you need to know this is the authority, this is what Jesus held to, this is his position. So that's Jesus' relationship to scripture. 
not abolition, but fulfillment because of the Bible's enduring validity. All right, so next, what about our relationship to scripture? Well, if you have your Bible open, I want to uh, draw your attention to verse 19, but there's a word that's probably missing in your text. Again, this might depend on your translation because it ought to say, as it does in the original, anyone therefore. And of course, as students of the Bible, whenever you see the word therefore, you know you need to ask what it's there for. Right, so Jesus is drawing certain conclusions now based on what he has just said about the truthfulness and permanent validity of scripture. Because of that, he now says, verse 19, anyone therefore who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So two conclusions. Number one, Jesus is asserting that greatness in the kingdom will be measured by whether or not our lives conform to scripture. And so to begin with, Jesus says we must practice these commands ourselves. Now think what this might mean for you. For example, it would mean that when you tell your friend in the language of Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not our narrow, super conservative, intolerant, religious position. No, that's the authoritative promise of God. If you confess, you believe, you'll be saved. It means that because what the Bible says is truth, we need to regard it as our foundation when it comes to things like caring for the poor, for the disadvantaged, for our environment today. In other words, we need to be developing a Christian worldview on these and all other ethical moral issues because that's what 180 followers, radical revolutionary followers of Jesus do. And it means, and this is a word for me right now, in light of the week I've had, I can't justify my anxieties. I've had a tough week in terms of being anxious about certain things and uh, try to justify my fears and worries about things. And not when the scripture says, I can cast all of my anxiety on him because he cares for me. So greatness in God's kingdom is measured by practicing scripture. Not only that, but Jesus says we need to teach it Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So friends, let's be careful. Careful when God gives a command, lest we make it say what we want it to say so we can do what we want to do. You know what I mean? I mean, for a number of people today, even I'm afraid to say inside the church, Wrong no longer means wrong. Maybe it used to mean wrong, but that was thousands of years ago. So wrong doesn't mean wrong anymore. What does it mean? Well, it means, I don't know, maybe okay, or maybe I'm not really sure any longer. And right no longer means really right. It's maybe partially right, or it's right for you. If it feels right for you, no. 
Greatness in God's kingdom is measured by our conformity to scripture and what it says is right and what it says is wrong. So that's his first conclusion. But here's the second. Entrance into God's kingdom is impossible without a changed life. Now I want you to notice this radical word that Jesus adds in verse 20. For I tell you, here it is again, his authority. I tell you that unless your righteousness, that, that means your behavior, your conduct, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that is the scribes, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What in the world does that mean? Well, the people that Jesus refers to in this verse, Pharisees and teachers of the law, I mean, they were the most outstanding religious people of the day. Everybody looked up to the teachers of the law. The scribes not only made copies of the Bible, they were the great teachers. And the Pharisees, wow, were they ever known for their piety. You know, the Old Testament law said everybody was supposed to fast one day a year. They were fasting twice a week, spending hours in prayer, tithing 10% of everything, orthodox in their theology. And Jesus comes along and makes this statement. I mean, the people's attitude was, wow, we are so impressed by the piety of these holy men and you know, that we can never be like them. And Jesus is saying, hey, unless your righteousness, your behavior surpasses theirs, you're neither gonna see or enter heaven, the kingdom of heaven, you're not. And the people must have wondered, oh my, what in the world does that mean? How is that even possible? Well, the answer of course is that the righteousness Jesus is talking about here is different in kind. It's a different kind of righteousness, not in degree. So it's not the idea if the Pharisee obeyed 240 commands, you've got to obey 241. If they tithe 10%, you've got to tithe 11%, you know? No, that would be legalism, the Bible doesn't teach that. The kind of conduct he's talking about here is greater because it comes from the heart. It's the kind of righteousness that Jesus gives to us when by faith we commit our very lives to him. So that's the good news. Greatness in God's kingdom will be measured by whether or not our lives conform to scripture and entrance into the kingdom is impossible without a changed life. All right, so what are some takeaways from all of this for you and for me right here today? Well, I wanna share two major areas of application as 180 followers of Jesus. First of all, let's express gratitude to God for the Bible. Say how? Reading it, studying it, seeking by the power of the Holy Spirit to obey it. And let me offer some helps to you along those lines. First of all, are you in a growth group? If you're not, one of the best ways for you to go deeper in the application of the Bible to life is by connecting with, a, with did I call them life groups? Growth groups, whatever I call them. They're growth groups. What are they? Well, they're small groups, three, four, six, eight, whatever the number is, people they might meet in a coffee shop, somebody's home, right here in this building, wherever. And they get together, not only for fellowship to connect with one another, but to go deeper in the application of biblical truth to life. If you're, not, if you're not in one, we'd love to have the privilege of lining you up and helping you in that direction. Let us know. 
if you want help for personal uh, study of the scriptures, here's what you can do. Look at this website address. Do any of you make use of uversion.com? Can I see your hands? Okay, some of you do. Number of you do, that's cool. All you have to do is go to this website and for free you get to download the material, version. you get like, I don't know, 15 or more Bible translations, all kinds of reading plans. If you're in a hurry, you know, you've got five minutes, okay, there's that plan, there are other kinds of plans, you can, you can come up with one that works for you. So first of all, let's express gratitude to God for the Bible. If it is what it is, let's thank God for the fact. Apart from scripture, you would have no clue as to who he really is. Now it's true, the Bible tells us that the heavens and the earth, the creation reveal the character of God. So you can look at a sunset, you can look at the majesty of the mountains and be impressed, wow, God made this, this is awesome. But you will never know by looking at a mountain or the sunset that you're lost, you're broken morally, you need a savior. Jesus came into the world to die for you. You'll never know any of these things apart from the word of God. So let's express gratitude for the fact that here, God is making himself known because he's a relational being who longs to have a relationship with you and with me. Secondly, let's submit to the teaching of the Bible. Let me take you back in time. It's April of 1521. A 38-year-old man who's only been a Christian for about two, maybe three years, is in a court setting to determine whether he's going to be burned at the stake for heresy. So here's this amazing council that he's attending by force, really. Archbishops, bishops, The emperor is there. I mean, all kinds of political and religious leaders are there, and he's asked two questions. The prosecutor, first of all, points to a pile of books and pamphlets and says, are you the author of these works? Looks them over, yes, I am. Second question, are you prepared to retract their contents? Well, he says they deal with all kinds of subjects, many of which The church would be in total agreement. That wasn't satisfying. Yes or no, are you prepared to retract the contents of these works? It was then that this 38-year-old man, fairly new Christian by the name of Martin Luther, asked for some additional time because of the weightiness of this decision, what he would say. Could cost him his life. They gave him 24 hours. Next day, he comes back before the same court situation. He's asked the same question again. Are you prepared to retract the contents of what you've written? It was then that Martin Luther came out with this often quoted statement. Your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed. I cannot and will not recant anything. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. 
Friends, in a day when truth is thought to be, you know, whatever you feel comfortable with, and when the prevailing opinion is that there's no such thing as a final, objective, moral compass to determine right from wrong, I'm asking you this morning to make a definite decision, but by, that by God's grace, you will seek to govern your life by the scriptures. Can you say today, as you consider the Bible, here I stand, so help me God? I mean, do you accept it as your moral compass and guide when, for example, it says to you to enter heaven, you need a changed life. God doesn't accept sinners into heaven unless they've been forgiven and declared to have right standing through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you responded to Christ? Have you do you today confess him to be the leader and the Lord and the savior of your life? Either you do or you don't. And if you don't, why not today? Why not right now, here, this morning, committing your life to Christ? And then do you accept this book as your compass for your life in the world? Now, before you answer the question, let me re remind you, we began today with these five life situations that it, Jesus is going to address in the rest of this chapter. They deal with very practical, everyday kinds of issues. How to handle conflict, sexual temptation, fidelity in marriage, truth-telling, loving one's enemies. So will you accept this book as your compass for these kinds and all other issues? May God grant that everybody here will be able to say, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful this morning that when we feel lost in the maze of moral opinion and conflicting values that permeate our culture right now, that there is an ethical compass to enable us to find our way back home. And when we are on a stormy, churning seas, sea of emotions, that there is a lighthouse to lead us out of the darkness Thank you for your breathed out, life-giving word. Father, we pray for those who are still not certain about these things. May they find City Church to be a place that gives them the freedom to face their honest questions and to even express their deepest doubts so that in due time they may discover how great and gracious you are. Lord, may you protect this church. May you protect its staff. May you protect its leadership board and these wonderful people. May we remain united in our commitment to truth while always reflecting love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.